Welcome to BIB Today, the daily podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe, the Editor-in-Chief. Tuesday was a huge day for the British Columbian economy. The international partnership that forms LNG Canada announced its final decision, its final investment decision, actually, to greenlight the country's largest ever private infrastructure project to extract and ship liquefied natural gas through a terminal in Kitimat, BC, to Asia. Jobs, of course, are going to be created, but so will greenhouse gases. And this trade-off was a major political consideration for the provincial NDP government, which is according uh, LNG Canada with some $6 billion in tax breaks as a gesture of support. Its support might shatter the political alliance with the Green Party to govern the province too. Now, we're going to discuss the mega project and its impact in a moment with Nelson Bennett, one of our uh, reporters here at BIV who focuses on resources. But first, some words from the finance minister, Bill Morneau, who was in Vancouver uh, on Tuesday to talk to the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Let's listen to what he had to say a bit about this project. And so today... The announcement by LNG Canada. This is the single largest private sector investment in the history of Canada. It's enormous for this province, for the people in northern BC, but for our country. And when you think about it, I think the way to think about it is in the context of Canadian National Railway, the St. Lawrence Seaway, the kind of things that have been real nation builders in this country. This is a decision that will have an important impact for the long term, allowing us not only to have a positive impact on jobs, 10,000 jobs in this province, a huge impact on investment, $40 billion, but also to do this in an environmentally responsible way. We know that by sending our very clean liquid natural gas to Asian markets, we're actually taking something that has half the carbon emission intensity of coal and we're sending it to a place that is still more than 30% dependent on coal. We're doing that in a way that recognizes that the emissions or the the irritants around liquid natural gas are about 10% of the irritants that come from coal. This is a significant decision from an environmental standpoint and obviously one that is very important to our economy. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've had in the last 48 hours um, the announcement of a trade deal with US, Mexico, and Canada. We've had the largest single private sector investment in the history of our country. What have you done lately? It's been a big day. So I want to start, like, let's start, let's start with the LNG story for just a moment, because I think that I want to get into the, the, the trade deal for sure. But this has been um, just such an extraordinary uh, couple of days here. Um, you have been part of a group of folks who are rightfully basking in the extraordinary news that was celebrated this morning. What are some of your visceral reflections on this? I mean, you, you've watched this happen over a period of time. You're neck deep in the Trans Mountain challenges. You've been heavily involved, as you point out, with the uh, US trade negotiations, and then today happens. What's going through your head? Well, uh, first of all, obviously, we, like a lot of people in this room and people in this province, are, are absolutely delighted with this conclusion. We've been working hard with LNG Canada and with the partners. But I think it's, at, at moments like this, important to recognize that it, this has been a team effort for a long time. So this, this is something that our government's worked very hard on. We've worked to make sure that we can have some infrastructure investments that are going to enable LNG Canada to, to make the kind of investments they want to make. 
But the uh, BC government, Premier Horgan and his team, have been absolutely on this uh, from day one. The previous government, uh, Christy Clark and Mike DeYoung, were critically important in dealing with this. And it goes back, as Premier Horgan mentioned this morning, to 1982, the discussions around this. So I guess what it tells us is that we all need to work together on things that can make a big and meaningful difference to our economy. And this is a, a textbook example of how that can work. I know also that there's lots of people in this room, in the business community, who've been strong proponents of this. And I think we need to recognize that that sort of advocacy makes a real difference in ensuring that governments take the right decisions, the decisions that can make a difference for investment and for jobs over the long term. To discuss the mega project and its impact, I'm going to turn now to Nelson Bennett, our resource reporter here at BIV, who's tracked the proposal from its inception. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Let's look at the scope of this project. Uh, you know, we're talking about an initial thirty billion dollars. Well, uh, that uh, might be might move to forty. Uh, let, let talk about its its just its girth to begin with. Well, from what I understand, it is forty billion dollars. There was some confusion, I think, initially because the PetroChina um, share for four and a half billion dollars, they have a fifteen percent share. So that. Uh, Sounded like uh, that it was $30 billion for the first phase and then presumed that that $40 billion figure that's been floated for a while now was for the second phase. My understanding is this is $40 billion for the first phase. Wow. Wow. Is that as large as it gets? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, just it's interesting. <laughs> is because that all forty billion? <laughs> forty billion dollars, just to put it in context, and 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 you know, the prime minister said uh, that that this was the single largest private sector investment in the history of Canada, and repeated yeah. that three more times. Yes, I know. Now, it's interesting because it's actually uh, I did a little bit of uh, you know searching around. It's actually more than they spent on the Three Gorges Dam in China, which was the largest dam project ever built. So it's one of the worlds, maybe. Well, I don't know if you say one of the worlds, but just to put it in context, um, the capital cost of this project is roughly equivalent to the capital cost of Site C Dam, Hibernia Oil Project, the, the new Sturgeon Refinery Project, which came comes in around ten or twelve billion dollars, and the Muskrat Falls dams combined. Yeah, yeah, it, they're likening it to the kind of twenty first century equivalent of the Canadian National Railway. Or I mean the old CPR, mm -hmm. uh, or even something like the St. Lawrence Seaway project. Right. And all that. It, it, help us understand a little bit about how this is a game changer for the North. Well, number one, uh, we are the the Montney Basin uh, that straddles Alberta and and BC is one of the largest and richest natural gas reserves in the world, and. Um, it's it's very liquids rich, um, so it's got a value proposition even without LNG. But there's a lot of extra natural gas coming out of there. It's almost like a byproduct for some of these producers. Uh, but we've got a, a, an abundance of natural gas in North America right now, so prices are really low. And so it's very much like the the you know the problem we have with uh, Alberta's oil. You know we, we're constrained to a single market sort of thing. So by by being able to export it, presumably in the long run, there will be uh, a new market for uh, Alberta and BC gas that we don't have right now. 
Hmm. And it's a significant potential market. Yeah, it's a significant market. Uh, uh, before I get too far ahead of myself, a, a sense of how you actually get LNG. Like, like how, how, what is the process to eventually uh, extract it, right? Uh, contain it, and ship it? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, currently the gas is extracted using horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. The gas comes up. They have to clean it up um, and, you know, uh, uh, through they have processing plants, and then they clean it up, put it into a pipeline, uh, and then, you know, send it to the terminal, which would be built in Kitimat. At that point, they use um, a liquefaction process where they have to chill it to uh, minus 162 degrees, I think. Yeah. And uh, so this turns it into a liquid form. They put it onto these special LNG carriers, which have these, um, you know, special containers that keep it in a liquid form. They take it to wherever Asia, uh, it goes to a terminal where it's regasified, turned back into natural gas. And then, you know, it is either burned for heat, uh, like, you know, like we do here, or used to uh, produce power in thermal power plants. It's, it's a dangerous process and to some degree, is it not? Well, driving your car, I would think, is a dangerous process too. You've got <laughs> gasoline in your in your tank. If if anybody you know stuck a match down your tank, it would blow up. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. it it has been said to be less dangerous than than many other uh, forms of of fuels because it is liquid, and so if if there was ever a puncture, for example, um, it would simply turn uh you know back into a gas. Right. Um, there is these really strange, uh, rare events called believes, I think, where it's, it's, uh, where there could be a catastrophic explosion, but it, it's, um, uh, there's never been one on an LNG carrier, uh, to my knowledge. So one of the criticisms, of course, of our oil sands is that it is an extremely, uh, inefficient method of extraction. And of course it, it, uh, has a consequence of a great deal of greenhouse gas emission. Yeah. It's energy Dense. intensive. Yeah. Uh, how does a, does a, a, a fuel like this compare in terms of its, uh, relative cleanliness? Well, it has a, a lower carbon content than, you know, um, other forms of, uh, other, other, fuels and certainly much much lower than than uh, coal um, and interestingly in BC in the Montney the apparently not all natural gas is the same some have higher carbon contents mm. uh, the gas in Montney apparently has a very low carbon content to start with uh, compared to say the Horn River gas I was told it's something like one percent compared to five percent oh. so it's it's inherently lower uh, in, in carbon content uh, if it's coming from the Montanay, generally speaking. But one of the challenges here, and I think it's as much of a political challenge as anything, and along with the environmental challenge, is to try to mitigate the environmental consequence of, uh, of the process. Right. And this is a major challenge for John Horgan yes. to, in order to try to make sure that his base of uh, very big environmental supporters mm -hmm. uh, don't somehow um, believe that he's abandoned them. So what are what do you think are the province's or, uh, options around this in, in order to make sure that there are as few emissions as possible on our soil? 
Um, okay, so they, you know, LNG Canada has claimed that this will be the the lowest uh, emissions. Uh, it will have one of the the lowest uh, emissions intensity of any large LNG plant on the planet. I guess part of that would be just the gas itself is lower carbon. Yeah. They are using uh, electricity for some of their pro, uh, uh, their operations. They're not using electricity for the for the uh, for the uh, uh, the process itself of liquefying the the natural gas. They're still going to burn natural gas for that, but they are going to be using clean BC hydroelectricity for all ancillary uh, processes. So that brings it down. There has been some electrification already of the gas fields up in the northeast, so that that brings some of the the GHGs down as well. Um, so. Compared to most other LNG plants, it, it, it does sound like it's got a fairly low, uh, a comparatively low You're still talking carbon. about millions of tons, right? Yeah. And there's the big gulf between mm. Andrew Weaver and the yeah. provincial government because they're using different numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a bit different. I mean, four times different, it seems. Yeah. Well, uh, I think Weaver is using the Pembina Institute's numbers, which is... Uh, I, I think puts the LNG Canada uh, project somewhere in the area, uh, I think in the order of 9 uh, million tons, whereas the provincial government puts it at about 3.5 uh, million tons. Yeah, so it's below less than three. Uh, is there an option there for uh, the Horgan government to, uh, to essentially uh, electrify even more of this to then further mitigate that even if it is at great at great expense yeah i mean and this was this has been talked about for a few years now um we've already uh electrified some of the the uh the gas fields already so th there was the dawson creek chetwind area transmission line project that's already done uh, there is another project called the prez that's been on the books for uh, a few years so it's not like this is coming up just at the last minute they they've been planning to do this for a while because there is a lot of natural gas that is burned in the natural gas industry yeah, right. for everything from bringing it out of the ground to compressing it to processing so if they electric if they extend the electrification up in the northeast that will bring uh the the ghg profile down even more do you think that that is the piece of the puzzle that perhaps solves the gap that might exist now between john horgan and andrew weaver over this or or is is it just not going to be enough uh, I, I don't know. If it, I, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear Andrew Weaver's ideologically opposed to fossil fuels full Sorry. stop. Right. So now he is a climate scientist and, and uh, uh, you know, he um, perhaps could be persuaded by uh, evidence if someone were to sit down and show the calculations. Right now, we've got you know the Pembina Institute, and we've got the Canadian, or sorry, the BC government and the Canadian government doing different calculations. Uh, if maybe some third party came in and did an uh, you know an independent analysis, uh, perhaps that you know could uh, sway him. Um, because the province clearly doesn't want to shift its targets. I mean, by law, it's actually compelled. Right. It would have to change the law. Uh, but the province doesn't want to change its targets for 2030 and 2040 right. Right. at this point. And obviously, Weaver would, wouldn't support the government if that were the case anyway. 
So well, so, yeah, not so, unless they can demonstrate that they can meet their targets, and but that will that will require even even if it is only three and a half million tons or megatons, uh, it still will require the rest of us to bring our emissions down. So. Um, you know this, and this is where Site C Dam is going to come back into play, and then yeah. all of a sudden that that may seem like uh, a good thing to have if we are going to move to more aggressive electrification of more the in, uh, whole economy. A larger and larger power source for the province that is a uh, relative, much relatively clean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there may even be room uh, for more independent power at some point. I, there are a lot of. Uh, thanks and congratulations going around on Tuesday. And the one area that I thought they neglected was to thank Asia for for having this great market <laughs> for it. Uh, is, is it possible, though, that the Asian market is not what we think it is for it? No, I mean, all of the, all of the analysis that I've looked at, you know, you look at the various, uh, you know, energy uh, Energy uh, Information Administration, all these different uh, energy um, and analysts basically are predicting that there will be a very large demand for gas in general, including LNG in Asia, particularly China, mm -hmm. which has got a problem. Uh, you know, it's got a lot of coal power oh, yeah. that it has yeah. to to replace. Uh, and the thing about gas is that that it can not only um, displace coal, it can augment and backstop renewables. Uh, we haven't solved the large-scale energy problem yet. Um, they're working on it, but it's it's not there yet. Uh, being able to store energy from renewables on a large industrial scale is difficult. You need firm power for when the wind's not blowing and the sun isn't shining. So uh, Gas is a fairly low uh, carbon uh, way of backstopping that mm -hmm. with firm power. So, yeah, and, and there is everything I've seen. There is a growing demand for for uh, for energy. Period in Asia. One thing that we uh, we were talking about yesterday as a country was the idea that we were now essentially serving the globe in trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. But of course, we don't get the true credit for it. We get the money, but we don't get the credit for it. Yeah, we also don't get blamed though for when when whatever we ship overseas is burned. Yeah. So and and Andrew, Andrew Weaver quite I think rightly pointed that out. He's basically saying, well, we don't get you know blamed for the emissions uh, when we send a project overseas and that's burned. So why should we get credit? Mm -hmm. um, I think he's got a. I think that's a fair point. The way it's that it works right now, we only uh, look at the emissions that we create or decrease. We don't look at what might happen elsewhere. Do you think that a project like this, with the scope that it has, though, can change Canada's reputation in part in the world? Um, change Canada's. Well, I think we already do have something. But we have a, a an reputation. oil sands reputation. Oh yeah, true, true. You know, we have that. That that is the. Um, that's probably the defining our characteristic Achilles of our of our energy footprint. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I suppose. I mean, the you know, if if we can produce some of the lowest, uh, some of the cleanest um, LNG in the world, well, then uh, perhaps that does go some way. I, I think, though, for the anti fuel lobby, there's just it's uh, no, no fuel is is good. So I don't think that's 
you know, ever going to... And, and while I've got you here, I mean, uh, the government has said uh, again today that it's not going to appeal the federal court uh, ruling involving the Kinder Morgan pipeline, the Trans Mountain pipeline, which, of course, is not Kinder Morgan pipeline anymore. It's the government of Canada. Right, pipeline. right. Uh, they're still full speed ahead, though. They're still thinking yeah. they're, they're going to get this review done. They have Frankie Akabuchi, a former Supreme Court justice, is going to oversee this now. They're going to get Indigenous consultation restarted, right. presumably to the point where a court would accept it, and an NEB process that'll take about six months. This will all be completed in time for a federal election. Do, right. do, you, think, do you think the Trudeau government now has put itself in the, in the space where it can be considered to have, uh, well, let's just assume that, that we, it gets the pipeline project uh, regenerated. Can, can the Trudeau government then be perceived as a, as a government that is really focused in on our energy market worldwide and, and has uh, essentially solved what other governments found as a dilemma? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And, and yeah, I think if there are actually shovels in the ground by the time the next federal election comes on, they, they, they will have had NAFTA dealt with. They would have had this major LNG project. And if the work is already, uh, you know, back, uh, um, if they have started construction on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, I think that will go a long way to to demonstrating to the average Canadian, hey, look, they, they actually can get these energy projects done while looking at, you know, First Nations issues and environmental issues. And yeah. um, um, I think that would go some way to, you know, repairing this this image that you can't get anything done in Canada. Well, that is the image, the recurring image, because we have, of course, uh, uh, watched our foreign investment uh, really just trickle in mm -hmm. in the last couple of years. And we're, we're now really one of the poorest performing countries in that respect. Yeah. Does, uh, does this, uh, essentially this gesture of faith by the consortium for LNG Canada um, really demonstrate actually that um, it is going to be safer for companies to come in here? Yeah, I think it was a pretty good signal um, mm. because you have some of the biggest uh, energy companies in the world, yeah. Shell, Petronas, Petronas yeah. PetroChina, basically, um, you know, giving, uh, I guess, a, you know, a vote of confidence that they can, you know, invest in Canada and get things done. So, yeah, I think that is a pretty positive signal. Last couple of things, uh, Nelson, uh, uh, timelines on this, first of all. Um, we'd all like to see this happen tomorrow, I suppose, and jobs to flow and revenue to pour in and all that. Uh, but what are we looking at here, 2022, 2023? Uh, so um, Andy Kalitz, the CEO for LNG Canada, said that, that work is already, uh, site preparation work is already underway in Kitimat, and they will hand over the project to the joint venture uh, JGC Floor in February. And then uh, once that happens, then, uh, you know, work will begin in earnest. Um, uh, I, I presume that these LNG modules in, will be built in Asia. That's going to take some time. Mm -hmm. uh, but they will have to start building infrastructure. There's a marine terminal to be built and that sort of thing. And then uh, construction on the pipeline will begin. I'm not sure when that starts. but uh, what, what, kind of, what kind of review process is necessary for that, too? Review process is for... It? Yeah, for well, a pipeline. 
Well, they've already gone through all of the, I mean, they've got all the permits and certificates. The only uh, one uh, question mark now is there's, we have this one resident Smithers who's challenging the coastal gas link pipeline, basically saying the NEB should have at least looked at this to to determine whether this was a reviewable project. Um, So that's now making its way through the system. And uh, so. And you have. Uh, Otherwise, all of the permits and, and everything, uh, approvals are in place. And ostensibly, there's indigenous support. Yeah, pretty much unanimous. Uh, the the uh, All of the uh, uh, First Nations along the pipeline corridor have signed uh, agreements. Something in the, uh, I, I'm, I believe it's worth a, roughly a billion dollars in, in, in agreements uh, and contracts and that sort of thing. Uh, the only group that is really still opposed is uh, the Unistoten, which is a clan of the Waitsawaitan, which the Waitsawaitan is actually one of the signatories. They've signed on to the, you know, to the project. So, yeah. Uh, and this is going to be for, uh, for First Nations, uh, a major boon. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is why the Heisla have been so supportive of LNG. They, they, they saw what happened with the expansion of the, um, you know, the aluminum smelter in mm-hmm. Kitimat, and they realized that the industrial projects can be a real benefit to their people. And so they've been, you know, you have to give credit to the Heisla for this. I, you know, a lot of people were getting credit, um, uh, Rich Coleman, that sort of thing. I really think the Heisla and, yeah, and Alice Smith Ross. Was, Crystal Smith. And, yeah. it, it, Crystal Smith and people like that really deserve credit because you, I mean, let's face it, you can't get things done in Canada if you don't have uh, First Nations support. And, and and in this case, the support was very solid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, and I think the Heisla see that there are there are real benefits to their people yeah. um, for, uh, from projects like this. Last question. I mean, I, I think one thing that we like to think of in our lives is that uh, is that we can um, live and work in the place we were born. Uh, what do you think this does in terms of changing the complexion of the North so that young people will find pretty high-paying jobs available to them where they don't have to necessarily come south or go east in order to in order to find uh, uh, you know a, a reasonable way of life yeah I don't know how many BC people we're gonna have working on this project they're gonna need a lot of workers they're gonna have to draw through from all across Canada I think and um, so and but it is a temporary but thing I mean, in a town like a place like Kitimat that is going to be uh, there are going to be jobs available. yes yeah. yes Um yeah, I mean, for for these remote and re- resource dependent uh, communities, it's always been an ebb and flow boost, uh, you know, boom and bust for them. Um, so having projects like this and Site C, um, yeah, it, I, I think it's really good for those communities. It may allow people to to stay there rather than come here, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and and to stay in places like Dawson Creek and Kitimat. Yeah. Um, Nelson, it's been a good talking to you. Thanks for your briefing on this. Welcome. Thanks back for to, having me. Back to reporting. <laughs> <laughs> That's our podcast for today. Be sure to listen to us uh, every day. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher and go to, of course, BIV.com for more of our stories. I'm Kirk LaPointe of Business in Vancouver. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.